One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. from taking my son to the comic shop. Why? She doesn't want him to turn into... The, like <laughs> the guy behind the comic book store. Wow. I think actually that, that is almost a guarantee that's what yeah, will happen. I know. It's almost like... Yeah. By the, when you yeah. say I want you to think of the Simpsons guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's I was it, trying to, I was <laughs> to say, worst wife ever. Yeah. <laughs> they wasted my life. They are like comics book guy from The Simpsons, the guy in this particular comic book. Brighton, Brighton, really? Brighton has not got mention where it is, Andy. We're going to walk down the street. A leading city, still... a city on the south coast. Yeah. Well, I am obviously ignoring my wife's advice. <laughs> taking it in every Saturday. <laughs> Winning, like, favourite dad award every yeah. single time. As I take a stroll through the redacted <laughs> with my yeah. redacted yeah. to go shopping for. <laughs> right, right. So, shall we kick off? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. As usual, we're gathered around a table in the offices of Unbound, the publishers who bring authors and readers together. But guess what? It's not the usual table, it's a new table <laughs> in a new canal side office. Anyway, that's the reason it sounds different, if it in fact sounds different. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher at Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today, as usual, is the author and comics fan, Matthew Clayton. <laughs> Hello, Matthew. Hello, everyone. And also the writer, critic and lecturer, Lucy Scholes. Hello, Lucy. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for coming in. You are here for a very specific reason, which John will now <laughs> reveal. <laughs> Very well read yeah. off the script. Uh, you're joining us today for a specific reason, which is to discuss John. the book, The Vet's Daughter by Barbara Cummings. Yes, have we got that right? Yes, yes. It's spelled so. Cummings, but it's pronounced Cummings. Cummings. I think that was how I was told to pronounce it, by unless who? I'm doing it wrong, by um, Barbara's granddaughter. So I think we should take that as fact. And we should say the specific reason, or one excellent reason why Lucy is here, is that you are, it is fair to say, and factually accurate to say, that you are a Barbara Cummings expert. In as far as Warden can be an expert on an author about whom not much is known, but I guess so, yes. Not much is known, but in a way I feel, well, we'll come on to it later. I think you, I feel I know more than I know about a lot of people. Well, we feel, we, I feel as I could say writer. at the top, straight away, that Lucy has written an absolutely brilliant essay, which is probably the longest biographical thing available about Barbara Cummings called The Writer Lost in Time, and that's on the Emily Books website. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think it is the longest piece out there, definitely, because so little is 
um, sort of in the public realm have about you, her. Have you got any rivals as the Barbara Cummings expert? <laughs> <laughs> I think there was somebody else doing some research. I was told that a while ago, but they, as far as I'm aware, they didn't publish anything or right. do anything with it. So I'm perhaps not the first person to look into it, but the first one who's written about her. And definitely the best. Um, well, you know, if that's what you want to say. <laughs> Before we get to Barbara Cummings and her extraordinary nerve, it is the usual form on these podcasts that I say to you, Andy. What have you been reading? Well done. Thanks for asking. I have been... Uh, there's two things I'm going to talk about this time. I've been finishing off uh, the book I mentioned on the last podcast, Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim, by Justin Martell with Alana Ray MacDonald. The most brilliant and miserable book I have ever read about what it is like to be in show business. And I have talked about this. <laughs> and you've read some miserable oh, showbiz memoirs. I've read <laughs> um, A Little Goes a Long Way by Sid Little. Crikey. <laughs> which I, I, for, I've got a signed copy of it, for, which cost me one P. Was it you that sent that remarkable picture of the topless Sid Little and Large that was d- doing the rounds on, it, on Twitter? It wasn't me, but it's, uh, it's, it's almost a meme. It's, 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 it's yeah, proto-meme. Anyway, so I've talked about this the book quite a lot. I just wanted to read that just very near the end of this book, there is one tiny story which made me laugh out loud. Anyone who has ever been a member of a band will recognise this as the decision-making process of any band or, or, or artistic um, endeavour. Okay? We were all very happy with the way it turned out, Burnett concluded. We wanted her to help Tiny make something that would stand as a real album. At first, the album was to be called Back to Normality, after, <laughs> after a line taken from Tiny's ad-libbed monologue during Sly Cigarette. <laughs> However, the title Back to Normality was scrapped after a debate over whether or not normality was a word. <laughs> that seems to me to be... It's such a wonderful book. I cannot recommend that highly enough. So I finished that book. The other book uh, that I've been reading, I mentioned on the last podcast that thanks to the, uh, ma- the magic uh, of an interlibrary loan, I was able to read Haldor Laxness's novel, Salka Valka, which has out- been out of print in this country for the last 50 years. I also ordered another couple of books at the same time. One of those was Sheila Delaney's only book of short stories, Sheila Delaney, who wrote A Taste of Honey called Sweetly Sings the Donkey, and that was, that's terrific. Quite hard to, to buy a copy of that, but, but I got a copy from the reserve stock at Swiss Cottage Library. Thank you. <laughs> um, but the other book that I read was called First Signs by the late Barry Hines. Now, we talked about Barry Hines after he died earlier this year. We talked about him on the podcast, and I was asking why it was that... His book, A Kestrel for a Knave, later filmed as Kez, was still so widely read and so popular, and yet how few of his other books seemed to be widely read or popular. Because when he died, I did the thing that people do and I do, which is go online and say, oh, I'd like to read something by Barry Hines. Almost nothing is available except A Kestrel for a Knave. So I did a bit of research, and I found that he'd... A Kestrel for a Knave, I think, is published in 67 or 68. It's filmed in 1970. It's a bestseller. And his next novel is this book, First Signs. I could not find a copy of First Signs. So I ordered it from the library. 
a second-hand copy would cost you about £100. And it never pure, made it. Yeah, I never made it into paperback. So I was thinking, well, it why would that? That seems really strange that a novel by a best-selling author, which it's is published at the softy southern uh, critics, in that this. that might be one explanation. So I order this book for the library. I've just read Selka Valka by Haldor Laxness, incredible book. I've just read. Sweetly Sings the Donkey by uh, Sheila Delaney, incredible sort of poignant and sort of Sheila never really had the full writing career she could have had. So, I'm, But that was great too. And then I'm coming into First Signs by Barry Hines. Here I go. It is terrible. Now, I'm not saying that Barry Hines is a terrible author. He clearly isn't. He's clearly a brilliant author. He had a brilliant career, a fantastic track record. This is not me saying, this is not me having a pop <laughs> at the legacy of Barry Hines. Novel. I am fascinated to understand why this particular novel uh, was published in this form and then never published again. And I'm going to... Well, you can't see this, everybody, but I'm going to hold up the cover now and show it to the table. Audible gasps. <laughs> oh, my word. OK, that's... Is that pubic hair on the cover? It, it is. It's a full frontal... The painting of uh, a naked lady, but instead of a head, she's, she's got, got a pit, a pit head. Yeah, um, that kind of looks like some kind of weird Magritte pastiche. Yeah, yeah. and the plant pot just in front of her. Aspidistra, maybe. Such a... Well, it's a book of two halves. So this is a this painting is an accurate representation. The lining and the yes, the first half of the book is about naked ladies, and the second half of the book is about pit village. Yeah. Really. Real, but really, work. it's such a strange book. And so I read some more about Barry Hines. And Barry Hines... Um, is the author. Is that not the best author? Yeah, we'll we'll put the author picture up as well. <laughs> he, he, um, There's no blurb on this book. It says, it says the author of Kes, but that, that seems a little... I mean, the book was actually called A Kestrel no, for no, a Knave. No, be fair. Yeah. He has written two previous novels, The Blinder and A Kestrel for a Knave, okay. which were successfully filled it says with on, It says on the front, Kes, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, does the author of Kids. So Barry Hines, it says on the back, the son of a miner is a schoolmaster in Yorkshire, and this is about the son of a miner who goes to Spain. Published by Michael Joseph. Has romantic adventures with a lot of naked ladies Amazing. and comes back to his pit village. Now, I was reading about Barry Hines. Barry Hines was very left-wing. And initially, I was reading the book, and I was thinking, well, this book is... What's wrong with this book is it's no good. <laughs> it's really poorly That's structured. Te- te- technical, yeah. technical kind of... Yeah. Um, it's poorly structured. The... the prose isn't very good. There's no plot. Nothing happens, there's no emotional development, there's no intellectual development. But then I realised that Barry Hines had worked with Ken Loach a lot. And I thought, well, maybe, no, maybe this book isn't no good. Maybe it's very left-wing. Ah. Maybe, because, because, if you're of, very, because if you're very left-wing... It's a Brechtian alienation. Yes, exactly. It you makes believe, you feel yeah. that it... Yeah, okay. Plot is bourgeois. Yeah. Therefore, plot must be rejected. Identifying with characters, bourgeois. Yes. Don't like any Yes, 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 but that's exactly the problem with the book. fiction itself is the ultimate bourgeois form. So this is like a... This is like a minus finger being jabbed in your eye repeatedly. It is exactly reminding like that. you of the realities of life. It's like a long straight line which stops after two hundred pages. I was thinking this in regard to um, I wrote about uh, the ragged trouser philanthropist by Robert Tressel, which, is a which good novel. similarly though rejects many of the bourgeois tropes of the novel by being deliberately uh, repetitive and massively overlong. 
The theory being that it recreates the grind of capitalist employment. And it does not give you any... <laughs> in, any the, in, the, in the life of the reader. Yeah, <laughs> and it does not give you any sort of compromised romantic way out. So I would genuinely like... If you have read... In the unlikely event that you've read First Science Calling by Barry, Barry Hines, Hines or that you know anything about it, or why it never made it into paperback, please email me or tweet me. I would be fascinated to, to discover why. It sounds to me it didn't make it into paperback because it wasn't very good. Yeah, yeah but you know what? You know what, John? There's a seri- serious point yeah, it that it's a mucky book by a successful writer coming off the back of a successful film... It seems bizarre, even if it's not very good, that it wouldn't make it into paperback. Uh, that, that is odd. I mean, it, the only one I can think of that we've thought about recently was the Bradley book. I don't think that made it into paperback. It did. Oh, it did. Yeah. Breakdown did make it into paperback. Yeah. The one that the just one didn't that stay in print. David David Miller gave me the example of the agent day and writer David Miller gave me the example of something happened by Joseph Heller, which was the follow up to Catch Twenty Two. Uh, was a disaster at the time. Oh, and maybe they just bared and didn't maybe make it into paper. As in this case, having had Kestrel for a name, they suddenly decided to bury it because it was going to do his career more harm than good. Well, someone said to me, perhaps, it Why was, perhaps Barry it? Hines didn't think it was any good. Yeah. Perhaps he had to write it out, get it out, and then... Because there are other novels of his... The Gamekeeper. The Gamekeeper, which, yes. the gamekeeper, he, he which I think very, is, a, is a very good yeah, novel. Yeah, he has a very successful career... As I say, what's still slightly mystifying is that how, how few, there's only one book of his in print, and that's a Kestrel for a name. You don't think he wrote that first and then tried to publish it after, on the, based on the success sure. of Kestrel? Yeah, bottom you bottom know what? That yeah. is a very uh, yeah. good theory. It does, sound, it does have a bit of a juvenile autobiography. It's very autobiography. Yeah, because yeah, if you say that, and also it's yeah. just not actually the mystery, that great. The mystery deepens. Did uh, Alan Sillito move to, he moved to Mallorca, didn't he, after his first success? Did he? Mm-hmm. I met him once actually at a party, and uh, and I said, I said well, you know, why do you move to Mallorca? And he was like, well, if you see where I live, they want to stick around in Nottingham. I was like, I moved to Mallorca, <laughs> and I write about Nottingham from there. And I was like, well, that's very, well, that's very well, sensible. Just like Joyce, nice to meet you. Dublin from anyway. Joy. Okay, what have I been reading? John, what have you been reading? Well, I've been reading a novel by uh, Ian McGuire called The North Water. And why have I been reading it? Two reasons. I, I was struck, as anyone on the QI series will tell you, I'm the whale guy. I'm, a, I'm mildly obsessed with cetaceans. Oh. And I, I like the whole, not just the actual animals themselves, although they're interesting enough, but the whole 19th century whaling, just one of these most, I mean, unthinkable, kind of brutal, difficult uh, businesses. And, and the whole idea that we ran factories and you know lit our homes with the oil all extracted from these extraordinary animals so I, I'm already I'm already in the in the zone it struck me also that I was there was a book published last year called Russia which I didn't read which was about yeah. whaling but I looked at this and it also on the cover there was a quote from Hilary Mantel and a quote from Martin Amis I yes. very very rarely get Indeed. Martin Amis giving a book <laughs> a, a quote so I read it in reasonably high hopes. I, I really did think it was, a, it was an extraordinary book. And it's had very good reviews. It got, had a great review from Colin Tobin, which I might just read a little line from, because this seems to me to get it exactly right. The North Water feels like the result of an encounter between Joseph Conrad and Cormac McCarthy in some rundown port as they offer each other a long, sour nod of recognition. <laughs> I mean, this, is, really this book is dark, grimy. It starts with... 
It starts with a, a very unsavoury character, a harpooner called Henry Drax, who within the first ten pages yeah. has has basically raped and murdered a uh, a, a, a young a young boy, um, you know, ten year old, twelve year old boy. Um, it oozes every single. I mean, it's cold. They they go on a Drax is a harpooner on a ship. They leave Hull. They sail for the North Water. You assume they're going to kill whales. In fact, it's a it's an elaborate insurance fraud. The other main character in the book is Patrick Sumner, who's an Irish surgeon, who has we discover been disgracefully kind of um, excluded from the army. So he's running away taking opium in order to forget you know the, the, the shame of his past life they the classic setup they all find themselves on this boat the boat ends up kind of sinking they then find themselves on the ice there are polar bears they you know there are disgraceful <laughs> scenes of of you know eating sea the, 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 the squishing of a seal's eyeball in your mouth when you're eating uh, it's it's cold it's dark it's full of blood semen um, every all possible. the all the fluids. In fact, fecal seepage is a word, is a phrase oh. that's used in the. Everything smells bad. It's everything turns the, bad. The Martin Amis, Hillary Mantel, and a quote from what you've just said is I going mean, on the paperback. It's, it's and the thing is, he. What I love about it, I mean, the, the, I have a few quibbles. I, the use of what seems to me to be 20th century sort of slang, you know, using the F word a lot. Yeah, just slightly kind of. But in general, what you don't get, which is uh, there's not lots of long descriptions of, you know, he's not trying to write a historical novel to impress you in that yeah, Charles yeah. Palace away about how fully he... I mean, he obviously knows there's lots of fabulously gruesome scenes of what they have to do to the whales flensing. And, and there's this wonderful thing, the stuff that they throw in the water is called crang. I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, you, if you're, unless you're really interested in whaling, you can take or leave. But it, what I like about it is that the two main characters, you've, you, can, you can sense that there isn't... There, I mean, there is an extraordinary and t- terrible resolution to the book. But he doesn't... It's sort of like a meditation on how might you write about... Which I think is why Hilary Mantel likes it. So my, how do you write about the past without making it seem like, you know, that kind of BBC adaptation mm, and, and mm. Ooh, didn't they didn't they get have the you, dresses right? Read, I mean, it's a um, really strong. It, it, Cormac McCarthy's probably the closest. Have you read, have you read uh, H H H H or Ash 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 by Laurent Binet? No, <laughs> it's not, sort not read, of. Not even heard of it. It's about um, uh, Heydrich, the Heydrich assassination plot uh, in Prague. Have I got that right? And uh, uh, it's sort of Robert Ludlam for TLS readers. I mean, <laughs> it's sort of an, a gripping account of the uh, capture of the men who assassinated Heydrich and also amusing on how you put it into fiction without, at some level, betraying the memory of the... Brave, the actual bravery of yeah. the men who performed that act. You know, it's funny when you said you were reading this book because the publisher sent me a copy maybe six months ago... It's Scribner, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I saw exactly like you. I read the Martin Amis quotes and Hilary Mantel quotes, and thought, mm, "Someone knows someone." <laughs> and and well, but they wouldn't McGuire, give those unless they. Why teaches at Manchester, so I'm figuring ah, that. But also, that they wouldn't give the quotes unless the book was good. Right? Yeah. So and you got Colin Tobin, Hilary Mantel, and Martin Amis. Then you're already your your interest is peaked. But I've I seen think. people talking about it. It feels to me this feels like this is going to be a big book i see people talking about it already and actually when you told me you were reading it i picked it up and i read the first four or five pages 
and put it down and thought, yeah. He, that, I mean, this is going to be massive. Yeah, it, I, I, you know. I think he, I think that the thing about it is that it could be all kinds of. It could be sacred hunger by Barry Unsworth, but it yeah. kind of isn't. Yeah, it's very very taut. He's not making trying to make big geopolitical kind of parallels. He's taking a group of characters, putting them in. An, I mean, if you ever want to know what it feels like to spend a night inside the carcass of a polar bear that you've just killed? And, <laughs> I mean, it's just it is blood soaked. Yeah. Without being kind of, without being in, in, in any kind of, we'll come on to gothic, but I mean, it's not really a gothic novel. It has elements of that, but it's too good for that. And his characters, are, I think, are too, he, you know, there, are, there, are no, there are no easy morals from it. I, 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 was, I have to say, I was, I was, I was gripped, and I, I, I think, like you, it will probably do when you know, gongs are handed out later in the yard. I'd yeah. be surprised if it wasn't. I really want to read it, I must say. Just based on those three or four pages, I thought I must find the, the time to read this. The, I mean, really the prose good. is... I mean, I, 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 we, we've got to talk about other things, but the prose is, is faultless. I mean, it's really... And some, some of the passages are just... Um, there's a, a, a somewhere he talks about a, a newish a newish saw that he's got in his back, and some of the reviews said it's it's the it's the word newish that really <laughs> a newish bone saw. He said yeah, it's the yeah, word yeah. newish that's really yeah, yeah. upsetting. Which actually, fine, you never know that you're going to do these things, but the, that kind of precision of the unheimlich detail you know the very yeah. odd detail is very what's, very Barbara Cummings what is that book what is that book and author called again please it's called um, The North Water Ian Maguire yeah so given the choice everyone between The North Water by Ian Maguire and First Signs by Barry Hunter <laughs> you won't be able to get hold of a copy of First Signs <laughs> as luck would have it so we recommend um, we recommend The North Shore we'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts this episode is brought to you by Etsy Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Lucy, yes. Barbara Cummings. I first read a Barbara Cummings book at the start of this year, and uh, I really liked it. It's her second novel. It's called Our Spoons Came from Woolworths, mm-hmm. and um, 
I then uh, I thought it was I really liked it. I couldn't. It seems popular, you know. But then I read this book, The Vet's Daughter, and I was yeah. completely blown away by it. Mm. And uh, I, I've read a couple more Barbara <laughs> Cummings since then, and I think Barbara Cummings is amongst my new favourite authors. Where did you first? encounter her and when? I think I read Spoons first as well and I think it was quite a long time ago, it was about 10 maybe 15 years ago now when I was um, reading a lot of mid-century kind of women writers Uh, I think I probably found a copy in a university library or something and I read it and I really liked it but I didn't really think I didn't connect it with a kind of larger body of work or anything like that and I think because Spoons is probably one of the novels that has remained more well-known and potentially kind of more in print on a regular basis. Mm. And then, I think it was maybe two or three years ago, Virago in this country republished Spoon's Vet's Daughter and Sisters by a River, her first novel. Um, And I got sent three for review and I read them all and I just loved them. And Spoon's was incredibly different to how I'd remembered it first time round, which was sort of weird and, and sort of shocked me and made me uh, sort of distrust my own recollection of what I had read before um, but then also you then read The Vet's Daughter and even Sisters by a River and she's doing something really different as well mm. and I think that most people know if, if anyone knows about her they tend to know Spoons and actually The Vet's Daughter I think is a is a far more interesting novel as I think we all have um, it's, a, it's completely I think captivating novel and, and so strange and so original it's very short but it feels it's mm. so much detail packed into it there's so many remarkable lines in it. So, and so the psychology, it's, it's first person. So, mm. And the voice seems to me to have that kind of come from the, the first paragraph, that authority of a, of a David Copperfield or a Pip or, or anyone or a Holden Caulfield. I mean, she, it's a very original voice, but also so weirdly childlike and yes. kind of... I mean, it's... it's I mean, yeah... Uh, I, like I, you are blown away and also uh, uh, adding added to the pile of really really remarkable writers who I had not even heard of before we yeah. started doing this one podcast of, one of the things I found with reading Our Spoons came from Woolworths is that I couldn't shake off the sense when I was reading it that I was reading something I've seen this term applied to Barbara Cummings I found very interesting it, uh, I couldn't shake the sense that it was in some way outsider art that mm. I couldn't tell how much craft there was in it. Yeah. It seemed like someone with a very distinctive voice, which might be accidental, yeah. right? But then, when I read The Vet's Daughter, one of the, in fact, one of the reasons I read it so quickly is I felt I needed to read another one to get right. more of a sense yeah, of yeah, the artistry of it. And The Vet's, the control in The Vet's Daughter is absolutely remarkable, I think, in terms of the steeliness with which the narrative is laid out. Uh, leading to an ending which um, I was saying before we started recording I think is my favourite we're not going to say what it is everybody don't (laughs) worry but I think it's my favourite ending of any book that we've read so far for Backlisting I'd I'd go for that high praise well you know it's just it is is an amazing ending and I think it packs such a huge punch and one that you're not you're not expecting at all I mean you know the the novel prepares you in certain ways for things that are going to happen. But when you first read that, I mean, I was taken aback as well by it. It's, it's really, really... It, it's the, the punch is not pulled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I feel, I feel the punch is not pulled anywhere through the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't let Alice off the hook at no. any point. You realise that's quite rare in, in fiction, that there are brief moments when she's lying, 
she ends up, I, I guess it's the, it must be the Isle of Purbeck or somewhere that she's... I think it's Hailing Island. Hailing oh, yeah. Island, is it? Because she can see the Isle of Wight at yeah. one point. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out where it was. But then when she gets to lie in the, um, in the caravan and sort of for the first time. I think we've got a canal boat going past. I know, it's airplane. Oh. I, I thought you were spoiler alert. <laughs> it's, just, it's only lying in the caravan. Right? <laughs> but, um... Don't want to take that line again, lying in the caravan. I was just lying in the caravan and, and, and musing and eating, eating sort of stolen apples. I mean, the, no book I've read recently do small pleasures, small, tiny, let's be honest, mm-hmm. tiny pleasures, count for more. I mean, the, the bleakness of the life... The cabbage-smelling house, the the mother, yeah. the oh, the the brutal father, <laughs> the father. The, mm. every, it just gets worse and worse and worse. But she's indomitable, isn't she? She's got this kind of incredibly, this incredible sort of resistance that she just won't, that she won't give in. I'm and just, I'm float, just literally floats above. I, I, I want to. I just want to give people. I think we should tell people. Yeah. Normally, what we do on Backlisted, as you know, is we read the blurb on the back of the book. The current edition of the Best Daughter has no blurb on it. It has three quotes from Sarah Waters, Alan Hollinghurst, and Graham Greene. Pretty good. Graham Greene, who loved this book, yeah, and we're going to come on to that. He says the strange, offbeat talent of Miss Cummings, and that innocent eye which observes with childlike simplicity the most fantastic or the most ominous occurrence. These have never, I think, been more impressively exercised than in the vet's daughter. Um, but, so, but I did find another blurb, uh, and uh, here it is. Uh, it's from a review in The Guardian in 2013. The vet's daughter, a masterly example of suburban Gothic meets magical realism, <laughs> set in the Clapham Battersea borders... At the turn of the century, the novel tells the strange, sad story of Alice Rowlands and her vicious father. He puts down his cancer-ridden wife like an animal while selling the creatures brought to him for the same reason to the vivisectionist. There's a neurotic parrot locked in the lavatory and a, quote, partly cooked, unquote, cat. (laughs) After a particularly traumatic episode in her young life, Alice discovers she can levitate. A fact that, once discovered by her father, leads to a ghoulish, violent denouement on Clapham Common. That is an excellent blurb. It is. Written by <laughs> our guest. Ah. I thought I recognised it when we started reading. I mean, uh, yeah. that, that, the, magic, the magical realism element is, is, is what's remarkable, the way she yeah. managed that. I, I, who knew that this... I mean, <laughs> knew that there was a magical realist writer well, this writing, is she's writing, writing so about... much earlier than, yeah. you know, something Angela Carter, because I think people Angela Carter is, is, is she's the one a bit was... like Angela Carter, but yeah. she was writing so much earlier than that, and the way that she uses the magical realism is incredibly advanced for the time that she was writing, I think. So I, I mean, find it really strange that other, you know, that she's not so well known. I mean, it's the, the other book that it reminded me a lot of, one, and one we've done on the podcast was Lolly Willows, where, yeah. where there was a similar kind of, you know, it suddenly starts as one kind of realist <clears throat> yes. narrative and yeah. turns into something we, else. We, 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 we've talked about this before, but certainly with Barbara Cummings and the books of hers that I've now read, she has a, a unique combination of the quaint and the nightmarish. <laughs> <laughs> the things seem to be pootling along in quite a safe and reasonable way and will suddenly veer horribly with horrible realism into some terrible scenario of um, 
violence. There's all suppressed violence in it all the time as well. Or not so suppressed. That no. Just well, no terrible one thing about seen. the mother being the, the mother having to take the father. I mean, that relationship, uh, the fact that he kind of basically buys her for for a for hundred pounds from mm-hmm. from. from or the, the parents pay £100 so he marries her and then he treats her brutally from the beginning and take, she has to take his, her, his boots off every evening and one night he flies into a rage and kicks her so hard in her mouth he breaks her teeth and, that, the, and there are times in the book where she comes back and she's, she's obsessed with broken teeth and, and you know when she, when she mm. goes through her I mean I, I, I suppose we can are we allowed to say we can say that she gets raped in the, in the, mm-hmm. the most most extraordinary description, uh, accurate but awful description of rape I've ever read. Does she actually get raped? I don't that, know. I think I think she's. Do you think she's not? I just well, because you remember when afterwards the um, the friendly woman who helps around the house says that you're still a good girl. Don't you're still worry. A good girl. Things. Uh, so I think that it's oh, just for short of rape. Excellent. Yes, but she says that they're in, they're entwined. No, they? she says. She yeah. said, what she says is we were linked. He dragged yeah. me to the floor yeah. and we were linked together. <laughs> Yeah. Which is ambi- oh, ambiguous, is ambiguous and, uh, and, uh, is. unpleasant. And she does also say that she felt she'd never be clean again. Yeah, that's true. I think you read it as a rape, and then you think. Yeah. Then I always think afterwards. I'm yeah, not and it's sure. after the rape that she has her first. Well, that's the thing. It's the first traumatic event that, that leads, leads to. to... Lucy, could you read? I know you were going to read something from the start of the novel. Could you just read us that little bit you were going to read, just to give people At the beginning? Yeah, the the, the flavour of the of her voice, of Barbara Cummings' voice. Okay, so this is the beginning of um, the first chapter. A man with small eyes and a ginger moustache came and spoke to me when I was thinking of something else. Together we walked down a street that was lined with privet hedges. He told me that his wife belonged to the Plymouth Brethren, and I said I was sorry because that is what he seemed to need me to say, and I saw he was a poor, broken-down sort of creature. If he had been a horse, he would most likely have worn kneecaps. We came to a great red railway arch that crossed the road like a heavy rainbow, and near the arch there was a vet's house with a lamp outside. I said, you must excuse me, and left this poor man among the privet hedges. I entered the house. It was my home, and it smelt of animals, although there was lino on the floor. In the brown hall, my mother was standing, and she looked at me with her sad eyes half covered by their heavy lids, but did not speak. She just stood there. Her bones were small and her shoulders sloped. Her teeth were not straight either. So if she had been a dog, my father would have destroyed her. Oh, God. I said, Mother, I smell cabbage. It must be lunchtime. (laughs) One of the great, really terrible lines in all literature. (laughs) The Um, smell of cabbage pervades, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah, the whole house is... uh, And then they have their lunch, and then... um, That's the clacking plates. The clacking plates, and there is a... uh, Well, there's this bit... The dining room was dark because a dirty holly tree came close to the window. You could not have told it was summer, except that the fire grate was filled with pleated paper with soot on it. Before the fireplace was a rug made of skinned Great Dane dog. And on the carved mantelpiece there was a monkey's skull with a double set of teeth which seemed to chatter when you looked at them. Um, After lunch I helped Mother in the kitchen. Through the window I could see the sun shining on houses so I asked Mother if I could walk in the park with my friend Lucy. As usual she told me to ask Father so I went to the surgery. The door was propped open by a horse's hoof without a horse joined to it. (laughs) He was sewing in a peak's eye. He used chloroform, but I went away because I couldn't bear to see him sewing a dog like that. The smell of chloroform seemed to go with me even when I met my friend. Oh, Oh, now, see, I... 
That's so brilliant and so spare. I know, but the point is, it's the details that appear to be sort of slight, non, almost like non sequiturs. You know, yeah. where you're not sure where she's taking the story. I think, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. But also brilliant all those writing. weird disassociated images yeah. of you know the horse's foot without the horse attached to it and the peak's eye. It's this kind of weird sort of Frankenstein like house of horrors that's yeah. being set up. Yeah. And the way that she sees it in that sort of slightly, like you say, it's all these kind of disassociated images that together make this kind of horrible, horrible whole. So should we say a bit about um, who Barbara Cummings was then? Um, She was born in 1907, one of six children, grew up on the banks of the Avon River uh, in a house called Bell Court. That is the basis of her first novel, Sisters by a River. Yeah. She went to art school, married the artist John Pemberton, both exhibited work with the London Group of Artists in 1934. Uh, they knew Dylan Thomas and Augustus John, so they were connected. Mm. And the marriage broke down in 1935, and that is the basis the for the novel Our of Our Spoons Came from Woolworths. And there is, I'm just going to... Our Spoons Came from Woolworths, described by um, Dr Matthew Sweet as such an authentic world of grim boho poverty <laughs> I mean it, I don't think it's quite as good a novel as The Vet's Daughter but it's so also it's... very memorable although I really enjoyed reading it and I, and I, th- I think yeah that, that... and what Lucy there's a, there's a note isn't there at the beginning of Our Spoons Came From Woolworths yeah, yeah it just says so it's on the imprint page and it says the only things that are true in this story are the wedding and chapters 10, 11 and 12 and the poverty <laughs> No Which is basically the entire novel. Yeah. Because the, the novel is infused with poverty. I mean, poverty is at the heart of it. Um, it. It's the reason that everything in their marriage breaks down. It's the reason that they're unhappy. It's kind of so. It's it's such an odd note, isn't it? Because it's it's, sort it's of both acknowledging it, but also not acknowledging it at the same time. It's also so interesting that this is that that is now her best known novel. Mm that it's the one that's been most recently serialised on the radio. Yeah. Um, it gets chosen for book groups yeah. quite regularly as well. And it is a very good book, but it's that autobiographical element seems to be I think the thing people that people like that. glom onto. Yeah. Well, also, I think, I mean, I, maybe it's worth mentioning chapters 10, 11 and 12 are the ones in the novel that feature... Um, uh, the, the protagonist Sophia giving birth to her first child and it is told in quite a level of detail which is unexpected for today let alone when she's yeah. writing it yeah. So, and I think a lot of the more recent um, sort of readers and people who've been championing Spoons have picked up on that and saying that it's really it's, you know, it's revelatory in that sense that she was yes. writing so yes, honestly yes. about childbirth yeah. so there's something you know, there as well So in the late 1930s uh, Cummings begins a relationship with a black marketeer called Arthur Price <laughs> and I'm quoting Wikipedia here everybody Cummings generated money by breeding poodles, yeah. renovating pianos, dealing in antiques and classic cars Lagondas, I love it <laughs> and drawing for commercial advertisements which she once again this is the pattern yeah. all of which appears in the later novel Mr Fox, yeah, yeah, right. Mr. Fox is based on that period in her life. And then she she remarries in 1945 to a. <laughs> she's still connected to a friend and colleague of Kim Philby. Yeah. And so she has this sort of second act mm. uh, uh, in terms of she, she's out of poverty, but she writes. She's writing. But she's writing a. Isn't she? No, no, she's not out. Of Tell me more. Well, no, I mean, just when she met. Um, Richard Cummings' car, he was working in Whitehall, and that's where he knew Philby from. But he left his job in Whitehall. Supposedly, he was fired 
um, due to his links with Philby. Um, so there's a bit of a story there that's not quite clear. And then they moved, after that, they they were in a lot of financial problems. They moved to Spain and lived there for many years. And one of the uh, books she wrote while out in Spain is called Out of the Red, Into the Blue, which is probably the close. although lots of her novels are based on things mm. that happened to her, it's actually much more of a memoir. And it begins, I think, on the very first page or the second page. There's a wonderful um, sort of, there's a wonderful line where she says something like, you know, my husband, um, we've only got got one peseta left we don't know what to do i told my husband to write to the bank um maybe there's just no money in the account and they lived in spain on this like terrible like Bifa, didn't they? yeah they lived in the Bifa for a while um barcelona and then some i can't remember the other there was they sort of lived all around for a long time um but they were they were really poverty stricken out there i think mm. the poverty did haunt her for most of her life and if you read her diaries from the later years which i've been lucky to have some access to again she's writing about money a lot or needing money and not being able to get money so she writes um her first novel sisters by a river is published in 1947 and she publishes eight novels in the next 20 years she's, uh, she's publishing regularly yeah. right so yeah. she sisters by a river our spoons came from woolworths who Was Changed and Who Was Dead in 1954, this novel, The Vet's Daughter in 1959, After the Red and Into the Blue, 60, The Skin Chairs, which we'll also say a little bit about in a minute, yep. in 1960. <laughs> I mean, The Skin Chairs, everyone, <laughs> yeah. in, in 1962. Uh, Birds in Tiny Cages, is that a novel? or a... That is a novel, but that's the one set in Spain. Yeah, 64, so. and then Touch of Mistletoe in 1967. And then she doesn't publish anything for... It's 20 quite, years. I don't think it's quite 20 years. <coughs> uh, the next one is kind of in the 80s. 85. Yeah. Juniper Tree in 85. So what... Is she well known at the time? She has the patronage of Graham Greene. I think Graham Greene liked The Vet's Daughter. I mean, I think she did get some good reviews for some of the earlier stuff. Um, again... The Vet's, Vet's Daughter did get good reviews. Yeah, that got quite interesting reviews. But I think that she doesn't publish for a while, but... Um, something like The House of Dolls, for example, which is her final novel, not published till 89. She was writing that as early as 67 or 69, something like that, mm-hmm. because there's accounts in her diaries of her, of her writing this. So I don't know, I'm not entirely sure what, what meant that she wasn't publishing. Perhaps it was well, out of the, the fact she was out of the country, focusing on other things at that time. Um, it might be one of those cases, as with Barbara Pym, that, that Barbara Pym you know, can't get published yeah. from the early 1960s onwards. And it's only in the mid-70s when she is named as one of the greatest living writers mm. by both Philip Larkin and somebody else that, that the publishers turn around and say, have you got anything? Got anything? Yeah. And, she's, and so she then publishes her, the, late, the novels yeah. in her later career are the books that she's been writing while yeah. she couldn't get published. Um, That's true, but I think also I, I didn't, The House of Dolls is not a particularly accomplished novel compared to right. her earlier ones and neither is I mean Mr Fox is fun it's a bit more like spoons I guess but it doesn't do um, some of the more interesting things that, that Vet's Daughter Skin Chairs even the Juniper mm. Tree which comes before Mr Fox does yeah. so there's I don't know I feel with her there's this kind of two strands in her work one that is much more kind of straightforward autobiographical um, weaving in these kind of you know things that happened to her and she did live a fascinating live a fascinating life so that's you know it's great to read about but then there's this other strand of this kind of weird magical realism sort of suburban gothic mm-hmm. strange strange things that are happening and that kind of that mixture of comedy and tragedy and and sort of real horror as well almost Stella Gibbons like in places yeah which you just yeah. don't expect when you read her other stuff so I think that it's 
I, I don't know, I haven't quite worked out how you reconcile those two why sides is it, of her. It's, going back to the vet's daughter, why is it levitation, do you think, as she picks as being the particular characteristic God. that um, the main character develops? That's interesting. I never even... It's, okay, it's, I mean, but it is sort that. of, it kind of works, because it's just that thing, it's, you feel it's like... It's like, like mesmerism or the accounts of, of you, know, you know kind of something appropriate to the era. Yeah, something weird Victorian, isn't it? It's that, Victorian. That kind of I think thing. it has that. It's got that sort of gothic Victorian feel to it. The unhappiness is almost so kind of concentrated in her that she kind of almost the only thing she can do, and it's like, well, without giving away the ending at all. I mean, it's it's it, it is just remarkable, and I I it becomes a sort of a, something that she. It's one of the few things that she can take pride in. Mm. But um, also there's something there, because she goes into that sort of weird trance when yeah. she does it. And I think there's something to be said there about disassociation, which is why it also links in with, um, if you look at it quite carefully, all the episodes of Levitation, before she manages to master it as a sort of skill she can do on demand, they all occur um, after some kind of traumatic event traumatic, in her life. Yeah. And so it's like... A sort of disassociative, mm. a sort of disassociative yeah. skill, isn't it? Um, so it's psychologically consistent. Yeah, I think so. In, in a which way, in that, setting for this book is is remarkable. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Because yeah. no one's really theorising this when yeah. she's writing it. That's yeah. I think yeah. what's most intriguing. That actually, when you work it through, there's a really, you know, if this was being written today, you'd say, "Well, someone's read a bit of Freud. They know they can, you know, work yeah. it out." But you know, well, not even Freud, obviously, but you know, someone's read some kind of you know post-traumatic stress um, disorder. There's a lot of theorising goes on in the eighties or whatever. This is written so much earlier, so it's quite. She also has this brilliant. The passage you just read has that lovely switch in and out of humour. Yeah, that I just want to read a bit from quite late in the book. Uh, very short. Uh, it became almost dark in the big room, except for the glow from the fire. And I longed to draw the curtains and make it light. I thought I could see a tall brass lamp gleaming, and on the mantelpiece there were candles waiting to be lit. The vague, sad voice went on and on. Quote, My husband was still alive when the house was almost gutted by fire. I'll never forget old Floss howling, but we couldn't reach her. There we were, trapped in this very room and smoke pouring under the door. Henry was safe in the next room, but poor old Floss died. And the little maid we had then, I believe her name was Alice too. Her charred body was found crouching on the landing. I thought she'd be black like burnt paper. She was a dreadful reddish brown. Poor girl. I sometimes think the fire was the cause of my trouble. On and on she went. I'd have been interested if I hadn't been so hungry and tired. <laughs> I mean, I know. It, it, and you, the thing is, it's it's. Um, I'm going to read it a little bit in a moment as well. But it's that precision, isn't it? That yeah. If you're because you think at this point in the book, she's basically been rescued from the horror of her home life. Her her, her father has brought in a kind of the strumpet from the trumpet the, the local mm, pub mm, to come mm. and basically to be his housekeeper and what does Mrs Churchill the old housekeeper be damned she's a <laughs> yeah, she's a floozy <laughs> and, and, they, and there's a t- brilliant scenes where they're eating suddenly her father's eating all this fancy food that uh, you know because Rosa yes, the, the floozy right. is bringing so it's an awful awful situation and then she's had this terrible you know the, 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 the guy from the guy from the waiter who turns out not to be the head waiter from the mm. hotel but turns out to be the porter who rapes her or almost rapes her so she escapes down to look after her dull what, what's his what's his nickname Mr. Pebbles Mr. Mr. Blinkers. Blinkers. Mr. Blinkers. Blinkers 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 yeah uh, to look after the mother who is this Miss Havisham like <laughs> who's the figure I was just, just, just describing 
I, I was just going to say this a little bit. This is just what she can do in a parrot. No one can tell me that this isn't really, really writing of the first order. There's the old man and the chickens, right? And she just, <laughs> she just, the man said, they aren't good eaters, Cochins. The fat's in the wrong places. Look at that now. And he pointed to a bloated hen's body hanging from the shed. It was quite bare, except for a few feathers on its head. And between its relaxed beak, there was one crystal bead of water. I looked at the pitiful and obscene sight and found myself thinking of Mrs. Peebles hanging in the bar. Mrs. Peebles had attempted suicide. But at least she was thin <laughs> and had clothes on her body. I turned away but said good morning to the man quite politely. After all, he was so used to hens' bodies, he didn't realise how depressing one could look. So fat and pale and gently swinging in the wind. <laughs> oh, God. The thing is, we're laughing, but I don't think we're laughing because we think it's um, silly. Oh, I think we I it's find so, it's so full of truth and it's so it's accurate. so remarkable and so. Uh, I know, Matt, you had a thing that you thought it got a little bit ripping yarns in places that it was just you know there was there was just too much you know. I mean, almost you know, like Stella Gibbons, you know, shall I go and oh, I'm going to go and kill you know those hanging yeah, and the, yeah. the gothic elements. I didn't ever feel that she over. It was the it was the parrot in the downstairs lavatory <laughs> pecking <laughs> holes in the floor, yeah. <laughs> picking its own feathers. I mean, yeah. you know, the, a depressed parrot. The, I mean, everybody <laughs> trapped animals. I mean, that's one and of the, the things. There's the thing it? about I mean, the black. But know. there's at one point when she says, you know, she's going home for the summer. She has to. The thing is, they. This is what's so brutal about the book you, she gets out to, to Hailing Island and she has this brief moment where there's Nicholas who is the kind of beautiful boy that she goes skating with and then she goes and watches him working on boats and he's, he's on leave from the, from the Navy so she has this sort of moment of you know for the first time she sort of knows what it's like to feel that attraction to somebody because blinkers she can knows that blinkers is a sweetheart but he's really dull and has fat hairy like arms bark, doesn't she <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's made of bark oh, bark i know oh. he's so proud to be God, out with so her good on she her. just the, the fear of her that, I, I mean, that's one of the things i really loved about it was that relationship with blinkers in that, so she's had this terrible relationship with her father, mm. and he arrives as her saviour, but she immediately doesn't look at him as her saviour, yeah. which is, you know, a very realistic portrayal. Well, exactly, of, of it's really real. Happened. You can't force no, yourself to yeah. fancy well, someone, can you? Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing. Like I say, she's, she's, you think she's escaped, and then they, she has to go back to that house. Yeah. She has to go back yeah. into the house, and she says... There's no summer. The only summer in the house would be the blackbird singing in the holly tree, which is the blackbird, her mother. And I will think I will never look at holly trees again in the same way. Yeah. Do you know that being at the yeah, start? Yeah. You read that bit where it describes the yeah, dirty holly the tree. Yeah. And what about the extraordinary bit where her mother suddenly starts talking about her childhood in Wales, which is one of the most, yeah. I mean, really heart-rendingly oh, poignant. That's amazing. That. About how she yeah. she grew up in this beautiful place. Well, I think the book was supposedly when um, when coming started writing it, the mother was a central character and it was set in Wales and then as she wrote she realised that actually it was the story of the daughter instead which I think accounts for such a long sustained passage of, of the, the kind of the mother's yeah, yeah. life basically okay, because she came up with so I think she started writing um, the vet's daughter when she was on her honeymoon um, for her second marriage in Snowdonia staying in Kim Philby's cottage yeah, wow I mean she could have made the rural little 
fun, but she doesn't. She puts the most disgusting yeah. couple, yeah. the gowlings. Yeah. 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 So she never gets away from being spied. She's spied on well, all I, the way I, through the book. I think, I don't know what you think, Lucy, that is one of the, the brilliant elements of the book in terms of the way it contextualises the levitation. That the yeah. levitation is her only escape yeah. from this relentless parade of awfulness. And even that is co-opted. Even, even the rising up and escaping is controlled by other people. N- nothing breaks her, though. Nothing breaks her. You can't imagine having a more dreary, yeah. worse sort of life than this. But somehow she has this ability to literally to rise, rise, to rise above, above it, it all. Yeah. And you felt when you hear about her life, she was a remarkable survivor. So, Matthew, yeah. uh, have you got anything tenuous to add? <laughs> yeah, the fatuous details. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, 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 I've got a very, yeah, very fatuous detail, which is you know that thing where people say you've never heard of, like you did it to me earlier about someone. You talk about something like you've never heard of so and so, and particularly if you're interested in books, you get that all the time. You've never read. <laughs> well, in my house where I grew up, the book that my dad continually said. You've never read, and it was Neville Shoots on the Beach. It's like, you've never read Neville Shoots on the Beach? Uh, which always, he, he always found that very remarkable. So the tenuous link this week is, is for my dad. It was, a, it was a lovely dad. He wasn't a, an abusive dad. <laughs> With a moustache. With a moustache. So my unabusive dad, um, <laughs> who always said that to me, and Neville Shoots lived on Hailing Island, where they moved to in this book. How tenuous is that? The author, Jenny Colgan, recently acquired a puppy for her family, and they've called that dog Neville Shoot. <laughs> on the grounds that it will be spending a lot of time on the beach. Which <laughs> is brilliant. That is quite funny. Um, I've got a tenuous link this week. Wow. Excellent. My tenuous link is that the vet's daughter, the most successful of Ms Cummings' novels, I believe. Mm. I think that's right, yeah. So it was turned into a radio Adaptation, yes, and a musical. It was turned into a musical. Yeah, it ran. (laughs) Listen, listen. It ran for a month. It was written by Sandy Wilson. Sandy Wilson, who wrote The Boyfriend. It ran for a month at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury, near where I live, in 1978. And here are a few of the musical numbers. Now, Matt doesn't let me... Um, I love it when books are turned into musicals. Right. But back, on Batlisted, every time I try and get a song on, right, Matt <laughs> refuses because he is uh, prejudiced. Um, and <laughs> no, so, it's no more or less than that. So here, so here are he some of the... He's a musical bigot. Yeah, he's a musical bigot. He knows. He's, he's nodding. He's nodding along. Um, <laughs> so the vet's daughter was made into a musical called The Clap and Wonder. Uh, <laughs> Here it is. You, you wrote about this as well, didn't you? So just before you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wrote about this and it was very tragic about her... Oh, so sad. She, she wanted to hear so author, author from the I audience. know. She wanted it to be successful and it was sort of, you know... And, and then yeah, there's a bit in her diary where she talks about how she, she's off to see the first night and she's so excited about it and she hopes that there'll be kind of screaming author, author for her. And then she gets there and it's this horrendous production that everyone is kind of obviously booing. <laughs> and then she has to leave before it finishes to get the last train home. <laughs> So she doesn't even see the ending of and it. You, and she has to drink, like, a champagne, warm champagne out of a paper cup on yeah, the train home, knowing that it's been... The slowest train ever. Yeah, the slowest train ever, world. knowing that it's been a failure. And then I think the final line for that diary entry is, there's, you know, there's no hope, nothing to look forward to now, I'll never make any money. And it's so... 
Well, you'll never. No, I'm not going to. I'm just saying because of Matt, <laughs> because of Matt, you'll never get to hear my little tin trunk and me. <laughs> <laughs> you'll never get to hear "Come for a Spin" or the strumpet from the trumpet because of Matt's oh, prejudice. Because of Matt's prejudice, I am sorry. Everybody. Is there is there an original cast recording? Sadly, there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this, is, this is Sandy Wilson. It's the boyfriend, yeah. the man who... It should have been and could have been a I hit. I think they, but... what, they, they had high hopes and it just... Wow. I mean... It's a pretty I, dark I say, story. Yeah, I wouldn't want the Sending job of trying to uh, dramatise this into a <laughs> this, is, this is the music. This musical is the musical that Defying Gravity should have been written for. <laughs> Um, is, there, is there a song that accompanies the father selling puppies to the baby's <laughs> Yes, a lot more to life than that. <laughs> um, um, That's brilliant. Also, I've also got one other thing. It's very quick to say. We have received some mild uh, criticism here on Backlisted for choosing, for selecting books that are out of print and are expensive to get hold of. And so I want to draw attention to listeners. There is currently an offer available from our friends at the Book People online at the book people Brilliant. where you can buy uh, sisters uh, on a river our spoons came from woolworths and the vet's daughter all three of those books for four pounds 99 for all three Bargain. that is the best five that you and, and, uh, so in, and in return for that massive plug for the book people i am going to read you the blurb from their website <laughs> Imagine, I want you listeners to imagine that you buy Barbara Cummings' novels on the basis of this blurb compared with what we've talked about today. Here we go. Barbara Cummings was a very talented author who lived an extraordinary life and wrote a number of unique and witty novels that will keep fans of murder mysteries hooked. The books are set in Victorian London and are heaving... And are heaving with quirky characters, strange yeah. events, love affairs, and mysteries to solve. <laughs> <laughs> and vivisection. <laughs> so, mysteries to solve. Mysteries to solve, yeah. Okay. Oh, just, just when you were reading that, just reminded me of that. Do you remember those brilliant um, characters that uh, uh, French and Saunders used to do? The old ladies who would like they were, they, they were very posh, and they, yeah. you know, they'd lose a finger and they'd, <laughs> go to the dogs. <laughs> go to the dogs. I sort of suddenly thought, Barbara Cummings is one of those kind of. She must have been brilliant company, don't you think? She just yes. completely. She'd been through everything. She reminded me of both. Morwenna Banks's little girl character. Yes. And Morwenna Banks's, do I scare you? <laughs> Are you attracted to me? Yes. <laughs> the kind of weird Absolutely. combination. Just, just amazing. They don't make them like that anymore. That seems as good, good a point as any to start reading the script. Sorry. That seems as good a point as any to, to, to call it to a halt. Thanks, Lucy, for coming on. My pleasure entirely. It's been really nice to talk about her. Oh, it's, I really hope... Seriously, people, please, yeah, please yeah, yeah, yeah. go to the book people or your library yeah. or, or wherever. anywhere else you can get these books. I feel like you can't. I mean, I know we've done a good job. Well, I think we have done a good job, but you can't quite no. ask what she's like until you read her. No, so absolutely do. right. Yeah. It will. It will. You will. It'll be something you always you'll, you'll remember forever. I mean, it's it's a, a, a gift. Thanks. So thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Matthew Clayton. Thank you. Thank you, producer Matt Hall. Thank you. Uh, thanks once again to Unbound. 
You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at BatlistedPod, on Facebook, which is BatlistedPod, uh, and on the un- page on the Unbound site, which is unbound.co.uk forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, it's good night from me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I'm going to break into song. Just for that now. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.